I want to talk for a couple of minutes this morning about, about fairness. Uh, how many of you, you like things to be fair? Come on, let me see your hands. You just like things to be fair. But, but let's be honest. When you think about fairness, it's a little bit subjective, isn't it? Uh, we complain when things are not fair against us. Um, I was driving home with, with Steve yesterday, and, and uh, he, he likes to step on the gas. I don't know if you know that about about Steve, but he, he likes to, to go fast, and, and I have that same, same kind of mentality, and I don't think it's fair if I'm driving fast, and then there are 10 cars that pass me, and then I get pulled over. That's not fair. We tend to complain when things are not fair against us, right? But what happens when things are not fair in our favor, to our benefit? What do we call that? Well, we call that answered prayer, don't we? When things happen in our lives are better than what we anticipated, we never complain about that. Uh, one day, a friend of mine called, and he says, I've got some tickets to the presidential library that's opening in Texas. George Bush was opening up his presidential library, and uh, my friend called me and said, I have a friend who's pretty close to the president who can't make it and he gave me his tickets, would you like to go? And so I said, sure, man, that's, that's one of those opportunities. Now, I, I want you to realize that I, don't, I didn't know the president. I had a friend who knew a friend who knew the president. Well, we went to this presidential library opening and uh, all of the you know, dignitaries and celebrities that were there, it was mind-boggling, but we didn't realize how incredible our tickets were. We got an idea when we had this exclusive parking area and then they invited us to sit in the VIP section and I found myself sitting next to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And on the other side was the Prime Minister of England. Somebody from our church saw me sitting in that section and they said, Pastor, we knew you were important but not that important. And after the ceremonies, we, we had lunch in a, in a very special section. They, they fenced us very important people. They fenced us away from the common people. <laughs> and I was walking on the inside of this fenced area, and someone looked at me, pointed at me, and screamed and fainted right in front of me. I have no idea who she thought I was. But I thought, man, this is cool. This is amazing. And then I turned around and I saw Kevin Costner. So she wasn't even looking at me. She was looking at him. But you know, not once did I complain about my good fortune. Not once. Man, I thought this was the greatest thing in all of the world. And I acted like I belonged. And I just think that's the way it is in life, that... When it comes to fairness, we're a little bit selective, aren't we? We complain when things are unfair, and we rejoice when things are unfair to our benefit. We, we complain when they're unfair to our demise. A couple of years ago, we took our television team out onto the streets of Austin because we wanted to ask this question, how do people get to heaven? 
And at the end of the day, when we analyzed all of the information that we got back, about 96, 97% of the people who responded basically said that heaven is all about fairness. Because this is the responses that we got at the end of the day. They said that good people go to heaven and bad people don't. You would have been surprised how many people, that was their answer. How do people get to heaven? Good people go, bad people don't. That, my friends, is really all about fairness. But let me ask you this question this morning. Do you really want God to be fair with you? When heaven is on the line, is that what you really want? Do you want God to be fair? Because I have a feeling that we grossly over-exaggerate how good we are. And we underestimate all of our flaws. So, so we, do we really want to be fair? Do you really want God to give you exactly what you deserve? But the reason why we got up this morning, and the reason why we came to church, the reason why you guys are watching online or at, uh, at some of the other campuses, the reason why we're here is because God is incredibly unfair to us, to our benefit. And it's the reason why we worship. It's the reason why we go through the challenges of, of, of showering, and hopefully you showered, and got dressed and came to church today is because God is incredibly unfair. You might say scandalously unfair to our benefit. When I was thinking about what to share today, uh, I often love um, you know, sharing principles and ideas and thoughts on how to live the best life you can empowered by the grace of God in your life. But today I'm not gonna talk about points and I'm not gonna talk about necessarily even things that you can do behaviorally to enrich your life. Really what I wanna do today is just tell you a story. A story that I hope you will never ever forget for the rest of your lives. In my view, of this, it's a story of the most scandalous grace that was ever expressed. We're gonna, we're gonna find this story in Luke chapter 23, but I, I need to set it up a little bit for you. Some stories, when you read them, you get the whole story. You get where they were born, you get who their parents were, you get you know, what they did for a living, you get the drama, you get the resolution, you get the whole story. But this is not one of those stories. In fact, in this particular story, all we get is the last paragraph of the last page of the last chapter in this man's life. We only get the very end. But this particular story is so impactful that wherever the gospel is preached, this story is told. Jesus is being led up to the hill to be crucified. And we'll begin this story in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. The Bible doesn't give these criminals a name. 
but church history does. And one of them is named Demas. We don't know why his life unfolded the way it did. We don't know what challenges he had growing up. We didn't know if he had good parents, bad parents. We all know that sometimes your environment often sets you on a course. And maybe if you didn't have good parents or you didn't have good circumstances in your childhood, you can make some bad decisions. But let's be honest, we also know that kids can make bad decisions from good parents. And if we're really honest, we can say that all of us at times have made bad decisions. The Bible teaches that all of us in some form or fashion have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Demas is described as a criminal. He wasn't described as a zealot or as a political prisoner. He was a criminal. And if you know anything about first century uh, Roman Empire, you would know that criminals were often used as rowers in the galley slave ships of the Roman Navy. And they wouldn't take a criminal and execute this criminal and rob them of an able-bodied seaman who would be able to row their ships. So there had to be something unique about Demas's life. He had to be discerned to be so violent or so unpredictable or his crimes so heinous that the Roman Empire decided to execute him rather than use him in one of their warships. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 33, we pick up the story again. When they came to a place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Thousands of people had gathered that day and had surrounded, you know, the, the hill of Golgotha. There, there, there were tons of people that were onlookers. There were townspeople there. There were Roman soldiers that were there. There were even some intimate friends of Jesus that were there. But the majority probably onlookers. And what's interesting, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, is that there's a lot of scoffing and mocking that's taking place. The religious leaders who had gathered there that day, they look up at Jesus and say, if you're the king, you know, save yourself. The Roman soldiers that had gathered, you know, picked up on that and said basically the same thing. In fact, even one of the other criminals that's hanging on the cross next to Jesus says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us too. In the darkness of this particular moment, and I can see the clouds, the ominous clouds gathering around the cross. I can, I can almost see the lightning and the thunder. And you can hear the mockery of those that had gathered. There is one person who lifts his voice to defend Jesus. Now, if you were thinking about this casually, you say, who would be that one voice? Maybe you would think it was somebody who sat at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was talking about how blessed are those who, who are peacemakers and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Certainly, there had to be somebody sitting in the crowd that day that was so moved by the words of Jesus that now seeing Jesus on the cross, they are moved to defend him. But it wasn't someone who was in one of those messages. And it wasn't the woman who was caught in adultery. And it wasn't even one of his 
incredibly close disciples. The lone voice that shouts out in the darkness that day to defend Jesus is the other criminal hanging on the cross, Demas. He's the only one who speaks up for Jesus. This is what he says. He says, don't you fear God? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Here's a guy who never went to school, Bible school, never learned any theology, but this three-point message from these words that he speaks are absolutely incredible. Point number one, this is a divine thing that's happening. Don't you fear God? God is in this. Point two, we're getting what we deserve. He had enough self-awareness to recognize that he was getting justice. In a I'm okay, you're okay world, it's surprising how many people don't have this self-awareness to recognize that they need some help. This man does. Point number three, there was someone here who's dying that doesn't deserve to die. That's amazing that this criminal captured in one sentence the reality of the human condition. We are bad, and he is good. He was under no illusions. He was not thinking, hanging on that cross, that his life was good enough to merit heaven. He only has one hope. If there is any hope, he only has this thought. What he needed most in life, he gave precious little of to others. He needed grace. And in an act of desperation, this criminal on the cross cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Researchers have debated how he ever even got the thought to ask for grace. Why did that thought even enter into his mind? If the kingdom of God is about being good enough, this man has no chance. If the kingdom of God is about fairness, it's over for him. I think that this idea of asking for grace was formed in his mind when Jesus did something scandalous from the cross that he must have heard. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, it says that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So here's this, this criminal on the cross who hears Jesus extend forgiveness to the entire group of people that had gathered around him that day. And you know what's interesting to me? Is that Jesus initiated forgiveness even though nobody asked him. 
It wasn't like the Roman soldiers that were casting lots for his clothes. Thought to themselves, hey, what we're doing here is not right. Jesus, would you forgive me? And then Jesus responds, yes, I forgive you. It's not like the religious leaders had a change of heart. It wasn't like the casual kind of apathetic townspeople that were there to just, you know, observe out of curiosity what was happening. It wasn't like one of them had a pang of conscience and said, forgive us. Nobody asked for it, but Jesus gave it of his own initiative. And maybe, just maybe, that thief hearing Jesus express grace even to those who didn't ask for it, just maybe there might be some for him. Because here's the bottom line, guys. There is nothing that this thief can do. In a few minutes, he's going to breathe his last breath. There's nothing that this thief can do. He would not be able to make restitution to those he had harmed. He would never be able to go back to those he had stolen from, perhaps those he had, he had abused in his life. He won't be able to go back to them and say, I'm sorry. He would not be able to prove just how sincere his faith was by how he lived. He wouldn't be able to go back to his local church and be an usher or a greeter or, or, or sing on the worship team or maybe from his background be a part of the security team. There is nothing that this guy can do. He can't give up his dishonest ways. He can't become a productive member of society. He can't go back to school and get an education. There is nothing that he can do. And he says to Jesus, remember me. Remember me. I know some of you have probably read this story and so what happens next is gonna be a little bit less impactful because you know what he says. But just for the sake of our time together here today, I, I wish you would just kind of wipe your imagination free and just kind of let this story unfold, the significance of it. Let, it. let it unfold in your heart and in your life here today. What is Jesus going to do? He says, Jesus, remember me. Jesus turns his head and three of the most powerful words you're ever going to read, Jesus answered him. Are you kidding me? Jesus answered him. Why bother? Why bother even acknowledge him? Why even recognize the existence of such a person? Since there's nothing that Demas could do to ever merit or justify an act of grace in his life, since there's no way that he could even prove his sincerity, why would Jesus answer him at all? Every word that Jesus spoke from the cross would cause him agonizing pain. Every breath 
was excruciating. He would have to push up on those nail-scarred feet and hands, and it would send shockwaves of pain in through his entire uh, body. He was being tortured as he spoke. But Jesus answered him anyway, and in so doing, he turned the entire religious world, and I mean that, that's not an overstatement, what he says next turns the entire world upside down. In fact, Jesus knew that his words would be so shocking that he prefaces what he says with this phrase, I tell you the truth. Do you know who uses that phrase, I tell you the truth? It's people who doubt whether what's going to happen after those words are going to be believed by those who hear it. Because it's so outrageous and so outlandish, what's going to happen next is so unthinkable that Jesus has to say, I tell you the truth because you're not going to believe it. You're, 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 you're not even going to imagine. He says, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now please, let's not rush by these words too quickly. Jesus, the personification of perfection, turns to someone who is the opposite of that in every way, and he says, where I am going, you're coming too. He granted to this criminal the exact same reward that he gave to Stephen, who was martyred for his faith, stoned for his testimony of the good news. He gave to this criminal the exact same reward that he gave to the apostle Paul, who was often persecuted and beaten for his faith in God, shipwrecked and ultimately martyred. He gave to this criminal the exact same reward of those who have faithfully served God their entire life. And if that is not scandalous, then I don't know what is. The reason I hope you will remember this story is because none of us are perfect and the enemy, our, our adversary, often will try to convince you that your flaws and your failures make you unworthy of the kingdom of God. So here's my hope. I hope you will never forget this message, that you would know that Christianity is not about your personal performance. It is about God's amazing grace. That no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you've failed, God forgives sinners. That's what this message is all about. If you have abused drugs or alcohol, there is hope for you. If you've been unfaithful, there is hope for you. If you have betrayed your values, given up on yourself, there is hope for you. Even if you find yourself living a lie today, there is hope for you. You are never further than you think you are from the amazing grace of God. When you get to the heart of the gospel and the story of this criminal, you cannot, you cannot escape 
that Christianity at its foundation is grace. Yes, there are an incredible collection of books here. There's 66 of them with all kinds of incredible wisdom scriptures on how we can live our best life. But ultimately, this book is not about rules and regulations and principles and commandments. At the end of the day, this book is really a story. It's a love story about God redeeming mankind back to himself. I have a hard time coming to grips with why anyone would exchange this message of grace and replace it with a religion based on personal performance. Because who thinks that they are really good enough to merit heaven? Based on what? The Ten Commandments? Well, if you think that good people go to heaven and bad people don't, then the most important question, if heaven is on the line and someone was to ask you, how do you get to heaven and your thinking is good people go and bad people don't, then let's be honest, with heaven on the line, the most important question you could ever imagine is if good people go to heaven, then how good do you need to be? You know what I'm talking about? You don't want to show up to, to the pearly gates and have St. Pete meet you there and say, oh man, I would love to let you in, but you are one smile short. You're one handshake short. You're one act of kindness deficient. I'd love to let you in, but the standards X percent, and you're one percent short. And then how would you approach life if, if it's all about goodness? How would you approach life? I mean, if you lived your life bad the majority of your life and then it was goodness that got you in and you couldn't even do enough good things to make up for all the bad things you'd done there would be no hope oh it's all about the ten commandments keeping the ten commandments well how many should we keep and how often oh it's all about the golden rule you know loving people like you love yourself but nobody can do that to perfection. So what percentage would you use? 70%? 60%? And what about your family? Come on. Everybody's family's got drama. Do you get a family discount? Would 50% be all right for family? Some of you are elbowing your spouse saying, we probably need 30%. Is it just that you got to be more good than bad? Our memories are not that good. And just remember, we tend to overestimate our goodness and underestimate our flaws. 
You could sum up every single religion in the world, every single one of them. And they boil down to this. There is a God. He's got some standards. You got to live up to those standards. Good luck. Hope you make it. I don't care which religion you choose. It boils down to that reality. But that's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Christianity at its core is we did bad, he did good. And out of his good, we get good. And if you ever needed a story that would back up how scandalous that was, go to the story of the thief. Because there has never been a more scandalous story of God's amazing grace than that. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus laid down his life. And Jesus' death and resurrection signaled to the world that the kingdom of God is not reserved for good people, but forgiven people. Good forgiven people, pretty good forgiven people, not so good forgiven people, and criminals who were scandalously forgiven people. Could I hear a good amen?